Hello, and welcome to Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, a conversation with Ellen Crosby. Ellen Crosby has had a lively and varied career as an international journalist. She has worked as a freelance reporter in the United States and as well as London, Moscow, and Geneva. She was Moscow correspondent for ABC Radio News. She was a regional stringer and feature writer for the Washington Post and has written feature stories for major newspapers nationwide. She has written several novels based on her experiences, such as Moscow Nights and two mysteries featuring international photojournalist Sophie Medina. We're here today to talk about her Virginia Wine Country mystery series, the 11th of which, The French Paradox, was recently published. Ellen's books are popular at the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop, and we're thrilled to have her here today. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. It's great. It's nice to see you again, although I wish it were in person as we had done the last time. Oh, absolutely. It was like three years ago, I think in 2018, we did an event at the store. Was it only three years ago? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and then the year like after that, there was a blizzard, so you yeah, weren't able to return. Right. And that's then, right. of course, you know, whatever oh, what happened next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. You know, what I like about your series in particular is the shifting variety of locations, characters. Um, you seem to write according to what you want to talk about at the time or what the story takes you to. So that's why you do something like um, oh, the Vineyard Victims, where you have a, a presidential candidate, a former candidate, you know, dead in front of the uh, in front of you, Lucy's Vineyards, or uh, the Vineyard Vendetta that takes place in Washington, D.C. Right, right. Um, your characters also seem to come and go as well. And with, um, with this book, you have the return of uh, Lucy's siblings, right? Right, her sister, her sister. Yeah. Yeah, she comes back, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, also at the, let's see, uh, that's right, Mia, the artist mm -hmm. who has brought along her, uh, her latest boyfriend. Yes, um, boyfriend du jour, yes. Boyfriend du jour. And it all takes place, I was uh, plotting out your book last night because I, I read through it and enjoyed it very much. And mm -hmm. I saw that as I, as I laid it out chart-wise, there's, there's um, paintings from uh, um, 17th, 16th century painter, 17th century, I get those confused. 1800, yeah. 1800, women painter. You have um, Parker Lord, who's written a book about climate change and right. the uh, uh, troubles he had with a researcher. Um, mm -hmm. You have um, uh, Jackie Onassis as well, and her time in Paris with Lucy's grandfather, Pepe. Uh, this must have been a really easy book to write. Oh, just, you know, so easy. It was so hard. It was, I, you know, I always, I find two disparate things. And then my, with every book, I don't know why I do it, but it's just gotten to be my thing. And, and I find these two plots. And usually one is an old one and one is a contemporary one because I love history. And so the Jackie plot in this one is, is, is history. Um, and then I need to find a way that's sort of organic that they will come together. And my husband has heard me moan about this with every book. It's like, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? So I had, I knew I wanted to write um, a book about Jackie Kennedy because she spent a lot of time in Middleburg. Um, she, in fact, there's a little pavilion um, um, named for her in Middleburg, right near the visitor center. She, she went there to hunt and ride. She actually fell off her horse during when she was fox hunting. Um, and when she was in the hospital, that's how they diagnosed, or they, they made an early diagnosis of her lymphoma that she died from six months later. So I knew, I mean, Jackie was very 
very much a part of Middleburg when um, starting back with um, her husband's presidency all the way up to, you know, right before her death. So for years, 30 some years. Um, and I wanted to write about her. And then I have a friend who's an artist um, and she is on the board of the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And she had said to me a while back, she said, you know, have you ever thought about writing about some of the women artists who never have been, they're, they're called the old mistresses. They were as, as important and as, as, um, as talented as the old masters, but they, they never had any paintings in any of the major galleries until finally this art gallery was founded in Washington. She said, I think it's a really kind of cool topic. And I love art. So I thought, yeah, that'd be really interesting to write about. So I thought, well, how am I gonna write about the National Museum of Women and the Arts and these female artists and Jackie Kennedy? And how can I marry them? And much to my great, I mean, something always falls in my lap. And in this case, it was an article in the New York Times travel section written by a friend of mine um, named Anne Ma. And she happened to write about Jackie Kennedy's junior year in Paris, where she studied art history. And so I thought, you know, what if Jackie found one of these paintings by these old mistresses uh, when she was there 70 years ago, when they were still you know, you could pick them up for, you know, a couple of bucks or something like that. They weren't, they weren't that popular. Now they're worth, you know, I mean, they belong in museums. So Anne's New York Times article gave me kind of the way to sort of marry the two subjects for my book, but it took a long time to figure that, to figure that, that, you know, how I was going to do that. Yeah. Well, and since you have a standard kind of <laughs> cast of characters, it's, it also becomes a matter of deciding which characters are going to play a role and, and how big of a role they're going to play in right. this particular story. Since, right. like I say, you, you, you brought in, uh, brought back her sister, Lucy's sister. She was an artist, which Lucy. was, I, she, that was, I was like, I can, I can, she can come back and be part of the story. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, it was interesting hearing you talk about, about Jackie Onassis, just because um, <laughs> one of my favorite spots is Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, I love Charlottesville. And I we visited there, my wife and I, and the presence of Thomas Jefferson there seems so strong. We joke yes. about it that he just the, the residents talk about him as if he's just gone out to the store for a uh, pack of smokes and a lottery ticket. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, uh, yeah it's a it's a beautiful town. I mean, the University of Virginia is there, which he founded, as you know. So yeah, yeah Jefferson's always sort of a um, kind of a background presence, I think, in my books because of his interest in gardening and especially because of his interest in wine. Yeah. I mean, he's the reason he wanted America to have a, a wine industry. I mean, that was a really, really big deal for him, mm -hmm. as you probably know. You had talked yeah. about that. Apparently, he was never able to get vineyards established, even though he tried and he even had connections in France when he was over yeah. there as ambassador to be able to bring back information and plants and cuttings. Right. He grew 28 different kinds of grapes and never got a single bottle of wine. He was really, really frustrated. He really, it was, he was, they called him America's first wine geek. And so when he went to France, he did this whole big tour of all the storied vineyards of France and learned whatever he could. What he didn't understand was that the French, the, the French um, grapevines will never, would never grow in America with all the pests and everything we have. Mm -hmm. And in fact, years later, when there was this, this, this disease, this louse actually, phylloxera that went over to, that, that, migrated to France when American vineyards were imported, the way they saved the French vineyards was they, they learned to, they brought American rootstock over and they grafted the base of the, of the hardy American rootstock to the French vines. And that's how they saved the French vines by the same, you know, the same uh, rootstock that had actually decimated the French vineyards. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was what saved it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been really, it's, it's an interesting story. 
yeah, it was interesting to bring that into the French paradox because Lucy has trouble with her, I think her Merlot vines mm -hmm. and calls in an expert. And the little bit of discussion about why she was having the problems. Again, that's a, that little bit of knowledge that I, I really find fascinating, even though I don't grow wine myself. I just would rather enjoy it, you know, the old yes, fashioned yes, way. Yes, yes. This is throat coat, by the way. It's not yes. wine, but I figured in your honor, I'd put it in a wine Thank glass. You. Cheers, cheers. Mm -hmm. um, so, why did you call it French Paradox? Well, do you know what the French Paradox is? Well, actually I do, but. Okay, well then I'll tell, but I will, we'll tell everybody else who doesn't. You told me in previous interviews I've listened to, so. Uh, all right, well, I actually, I read, um, so back in the 1980s, um, there was a, I guess it was a study um, where they, where a group of nutritionists or scientists or whatever couldn't figure out why a country like France that where people had a diet that was high in saturated fat, they ate all that cheese, all that pate, all that, you know, all that rich food that they had with the cream sauces and everything else, why in France they had such a low incidence of, um, of, of, of heart disease. And they finally worked their way back to the fact that, well, the French drink a lot of wine, particularly red wine, and there's a um, there's something in red wine called resveratrol, and it they believe that that sort of helps your heart. So, 60 Minutes in America ran a story on this in the 80s, and it was all of a sudden wine is like a health food, you know, and grapes are fruit, you know, and so right. I mean, it just it just <laughs> went it America just went crazy because they re, the wine industry really did go you know take off with this and run with it that wine's healthy for you, you should drink it. It helps your heart. Look at the French, they drink wine, we should drink wine. And it was incredible um, what it did. And it was called the French paradox because why would, you know, that with this diet they eat, you know, that the French have is a real paradox that they are able to, you know, that they have this, this longevity that they don't have the incidence of coronary heart disease that um, we do in America, for example. Yeah. So, and, and it was kind of, there was kind of a whole double, you know, with, um, meaning in it with, um, with Jackie B, um, buying the paintings in France and, um, you know, and then her grandfather, Lucy's grandfather coming over from France. So there's a lot of French elements in the book. Yeah. Um, and also you have grandfather Pepe coming over okay. from France as well to celebrate right. the 90th birthday party of this woman cricket. What was her last name? Delacroix. Better right. you say it than I do. I would just murder it. <laughs> Uh, so you have that, and then there's there's uh, 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 intimations of a close relationship between Jackie and Pepe, and how there's also elements of privacy involved in this as well, because Jackie's journal shows up, and there's apparently letters in existence. And I don't want to give away too much of the plot; better better to read it yourself. But it it kind of comes down to the question of history: what what does history deserve to know? What do we deserve to know about a person? It's now, really because I, I there's there's I wrote an article for Criminal Element, the Macmillan blog, and then I was also I did an interview with the woman who is the um, the director of a historical library in Leesburg, and she said to me, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but she said the letters from Jackie Kennedy that show up in the book, um, she said um, as a, as an archivist, those letters should be preserved, and they and people should be able to see them. And I'm not gonna give away anything that happened in the plot, but she said, as an archivist, we want that information. But the thing that I ended up writing about for Criminal Element was what right we have to privacy and sort of the whole notion of celebrity privacy today and what Jackie was like. And there was an article in the Washington Post that I had kept years ago that talk, talked about actually John Kennedy and Carolyn Bissett. And it was the 20th anniversary of the, when his plane crashed in, um, off the coast of Nantucket. And it talked about 
them, the two of them as part of the last generation of people who believed that a private life was meant to be private, that it wasn't something to be for sale, that it wasn't something that you would, um, you know, that now it's now people, they'll sell everything. I mean, the, the people will publish their, their, their tell all, you know, uh, their sex life. I mean, everything's so personal and it's all packaged and marketed and, and, and you see it on Instagram and it's their perfect life and they're what they do. And it's all branded and stylized and for sale. And Jackie, you know, instilled in her son. And I think also in Caroline, um, this notion that a private life is something that when you lose it, you just don't get it back and it's to be protected and, 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 and it's fragile and you, and you, you know, you, 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 you cherish it. And I worked as a journalist way back when, when, and in, and in those days, if you wrote about somebody, if you, you know, if you mentioned anybody in a, in a, in a newspaper article, and I wrote a lot of regional feature stories for the post. So there are, there are, you know, people who get their name right. And that story is going to be, you know, on, um, you know, uh, tacked up on their refrigerator, spell their name wrong. And, you know, and they're going to want everybody to have a copy of it, spell their name wrong. And it's going to go in the trash and they're not going to talk about it, but, but you still, you had to be very careful what you revealed about somebody. And, you know, and make sure that you weren't betraying any, anything, you know, that you weren't, you weren't saying something that, that, that was private. Um, and, and so, and now it, it's just, you know, everybody wants to tell you everything. Yeah. So it was, it was, a, I, I had really strong feelings about the whole privacy notion and what people are entitled to. And I wrote, I wrote a previous book about DNA and whether or not, you know, you have the right to go back and find your, um, you know, find if you're an adopted child, whether or not your, your parents, your, your um, birth parents had the right to privacy. Um, oh. So I think it's a really complicated subject. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of room for nuance. And mm -hmm. also just, it's interesting to find out for uh, there, there are authors who were very um, uh, reluctant to share anything. I mean, there, there, you see that uh, Charles Dickens, for example, had bonfires in which he burned his letters and he burned any pa papers that would oh, wow. uh, describe anything. And at the same time, you have Philip Roth, who opened the door to hire an official biographer. And that seemed to go south soon after publication because uh -huh. of the biographer's uh, um, oh, own troubles yes, that were yes. being talked about. So I know. I have a deal with the, with the, one of my girlfriends. Um, in fact, my artist friend. That were, um, they've got a backyard. Her husband has like a big fire pit. We're both gonna throw our journals in it. And <laughs> Alexander from the Library of Congress is like, "You can't do that." And I thought, I mean, I only and I, you start. Why do people keep journals? I mean, I don't ever go back and I don't actually go back and read my journals, but I keep them to have sort of a document of my life to kind of record things because I'm a writer, you know, and that it's, it's more real to me when I when I write it down. It also seems that you know, that, uh, that even the most sort of mundane or ordinary day, there's something to write about and to keep me sort of focused on those details and, and kind of aware of all of that. But, yeah. you know, what do you, you know, I mean, did, I don't know. I just never expected anybody to read about it later, I think. Or be that interested in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, I've read uh, Samuel Pepys's diaries that are, that are annotated oh, and yeah. they're just amazing at, finding out how somebody lives from day to day. I know. And yet I, I love journals too, I have to say. Anne Rand's journal and, you know, and um, oh, what was her name? The, it'll come to you. But anyway, but I, I, I love reading journals too. Yeah, I, I collect those as well because they seem to be the most honest expression yes. of that person, at least the ones yeah. who never expected their journals to be made public. Right. You look right. at a nice Neen and you, you, you know yes. there yeah. is going to be somebody, you know, how, what's true and what's not. 
mm-hmm. because she's revised and rewritten her journals. And mm-hmm. there's even one story. In fact, I think she actually um, cobbled together. I think her husband caught her in an affair or suspected oh, her yes. of it. When did he not? <laughs> yes. And she faked a journal to show, see, on this day, I wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was. That was. Those are quite scandalous. I read those years ago. Yeah. Oh, they're they're wonderful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let let's move on to uh, our painter uh, Elizabeth. How do you pronounce her last name? Le Brun. Le Brun. Um, what is it about her paintings that that catch your eye? I, I've seen some of them, and they're 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 good portraits. I think the one of uh, uh, Lady Emma Hamilton was the one mm-hmm. in particular that really said, wow, that's, that's worth looking at. I mean, what is it that, that speaks to you? Well, f- well, first of all, the way, actually, I, this, I was sort of, I got the gift of, this is a person you might want to look at, a, an artist. Um, and my, my friend um, put me in touch with the, um, the librarian at the National Museum of Women and the Arts, and who suggested Gilles Le Brun to me. And then, and then I discovered that she'd been Marie Antoinette's portraitist. And that I wanted that French connection, so that worked out. Plus, Jackie Kennedy had edited a book of letters between Marie Antoinette and her mother, Maria Theresa. So I had that whole connection going on. But the artist herself, one of the docents told me when I was at the museum that one of the reasons that she that she was so um, popular and so well, she was very young. Her husband was the first curator at the Louvre. She was the one who made all the money in the family. He was the one who spent all the money in the family. Um, she did have to flee France because she was so tied with Marie Antoinette. And when Marie Antoinette was carted off to, you know, to um, the guillotine, um, you know, Vigée Le Brun left, and she ended up sort of um, bouncing around, I guess, for lack of a better word, all the European courts where she was very, very popular. Everybody loved her except. Catherine the Great of Russia. Um, you know, there's always one. Um, so it's, it's, she didn't get along with Catherine the Great. But what people loved about her was um, the, the the royals who she who she who she painted was she humanized everybody. She made them look. You know, Marie Antoinette looks. I mean, she she doesn't look like this this queen that you know the very sort of distant and 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 and, and sterile and everything else. But she looks like a mother, and she looks like a you know she's she she's she's she's. she's she's just they just she just humanized everybody and and softened them and made them not i don't know kinder is probably the wrong word but just less stiff less formal and they and flattered them Mm -hmm. and you know sort of managed to find the thing that they'd look at the painting and 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 love it and they saw something in them in themselves in her painting so that's what made her so sought after there was one uh, that I saw today as I was looking her up, and it's it's her with her children. Mm-hmm. And one of them has is her son pointing to an empty crib, and it's a reference to a child that died in uh, soon after being born. Right, right. And it's kind right. of a, a memory to that to right. that particular uh, daughter. Yeah. yeah. Well, the research must have been uh, uh, with with those resources. The research behind it at the museums must have been, you know, just a doddle. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, the, the ironic part of it is that what, um, so we finally went to the museum. My, my friend said, well, you have to go. I mean, we're going to have to go and see everything. And, you know, she's, she's busy painting and I'm writing and all the stuff's going on. So we decided, she said, uh, we went in February of 2020. And um, we got there, and, and since she's on the board, she introduced me to the to the the, the director and the and the and the and the, um, the, the deputy director. And we had, and I sat down with the deputy director, and we had coffee, and and the three of us had coffee in the museum. It's a beautiful building. If you get to Washington, it's an old Masonic um, building, and it's it's gorgeous. It looks like a 
I, it looks like a cat, a palace. It's just, it's, it's exquisite. Um, and so we had, so we had coffee and we were talking and I said, you know, I, I want, I want um, Jackie Kennedy's paintings that she found in this um, bookstall in Paris that now belong, that she bequeathed to her friend to cook at Delacroix. Um, and they're going to be bequeathed to the museum. So I said, how would that happen? And who, who would do that? Would that be you? And she said, no, actually that would be our chief curator. And she started telling me about this woman. And she said, you know, she's just, she's full of stories. She's really great. You should talk to her. She's not here today. Why don't you come back? So I said, that'd be great. So, you know, we, we go back to Virginia. We take, a, take an Uber back to Virginia, the two of us. And we agree that, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll go back again and, and speak to the curator. Then March, 2020 came and the museum closed and everything closed and it was over and it just the door slammed shut so fast in fact we had been talking about it and the deputy director was saying i don't know you know i travel so much with the museum i don't know is it gonna am i gonna be able to go anywhere and i don't know what to do and they had a trip for some of the people on their board they were gonna go to mexico i think no morocco and and you know who even thought so I, I wrote the deputy director, Eileen Gutman, and I said, um, well, do you think I could just have a phone conversation with the curator? Figuring with the museum closed, they're all sitting around with their feet up, of course. And she said, oh my God, Ellen, you have no idea what's going on here. She said, we have had, it's like trying to put the brakes literally on something like the Titanic. She said, we, she said, we have paintings that are on their way here from all over the world, and we don't even know where they are. She said, we have exhibits that are coming together and it doesn't, it, it takes a long time to, to pull this off. We borrow paintings from people that, you know, they loan them to us. We have to find them. We have to stop things. We have to, she said, we are just, and we can't find any, you know, I mean, everything's closed. So um, I never did get to talk to her, but um, it was, it was really eye-opening when you start thinking about, well, just because things shut down, a lot of things aren't shutting down and you do have to put the brakes like museums. And it was a, uh, it was really, um, it was, it was very interesting. It was a challenge. Obviously, it was a challenge. Obviously yeah. a challenge then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my, this goes, uh, segues into one of my favorite characters in the book, Marilyn Gilbert Bernard, who's the curator right. from the museum. She is the curator, right? Who I, never met. I understand she's based on a real person. She is, she is. And I'm um, thank you for asking about that. So what happened was I had already decided that my curator is going to be this woman, Marilyn Gilbert um, um, Bernard. And um, th there's, a, there's a bookstore here in Virginia called One More Page Books, and they are in Arlington. Um, and they are going to be in the backyard of Amazon 2 or whatever it's called. Um, but their property taxes had been, had been raised unbelievably um, because of it's a complicated thing with the, with the tax base in Arlington and they were in a mixed building. And all of a sudden they said, well, you're not gonna pay residential taxes, you're gonna pay commercial taxes. And their taxes went up just exponentially. So they ended up having a fundraiser. And one of the things that, um, and a lot of authors stepped up to help, and I, I volunteered a character name. So there was a woman named Rochelle Zone, and she was best friends with Marilyn Gilbert Bernard, who actually was um, a former school library in the Fairfax County, Virginia library system. And she was dying of cancer. And Rochelle was determined that Marilyn was, that Marilyn's name, she was going to win this auction, this bid, you know, this item in the auction. And Eileen McGurvey, the owner, said that every time anybody bid, um, Rochelle came in and like up the bid by another hundred dollars or something. I mean, she, it was the second most um, um, expensive item in the whole auction, except for um, I think it was uh, lunch with the Washington Capitals publicity team after they won the Stanley Cup. And so that was that. So, um, so I called Rochelle and I said, "Tell me about Marilyn." And she said she was much beloved. She a lot of students um, um, attribute their love of reading to her. 
And um, she just told me all about her personality and, and, and she said, and she had a Venus flytrap. So that's where the Venus flytrap in the book comes from. And she said, Marilyn would say to students who were coming into her office, you know, when they had something they had to tell her that they knew she wasn't gonna like, she'd look at her plant and she'd go, well, my plant hasn't eaten in two weeks and, um, you know, sort of put the fear of God in everybody who came in. So I really love that. So I gave my Marilyn a Venus flytrap and Rochelle um, wrote me afterwards and she said, you absolutely got Marilyn to a T. She passed away before she found out that she won. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it ended up being sort of more like in memoriam. And I really, it, it meant a lot to me to, to, to get it right. And especially knowing the whole backstory about, about Marilyn. But um, so that was, it was, I, I, I enjoyed that character too. I liked yeah, her a lot. Very much so. The, the, the Venus flytrap is something I don't think an author would actually dare to create. And right, yet, it, right, yet it really right. existed. And that's why real life always surprises us. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was also some other aspects of the book I, I appreciated. The, there is um, the involvement of tetrahydrosoline, which oh. I remember from TV ads. And I think it was like Visine. That was, was such a, one of those things. And apparently it's being used in a certain way. And you actually had to talk to a woman who's known as the poison lady about it. I did. Lucy Zara. Yep. Yep. How she did you how did you find her? How does somebody become known as the poison lady? Oh, she she, she gets talks at a lot of the mystery um, conferences and everything else. She's quite well known, oh. and she's and she's uh, she helps a lot of us. So I, um, you can get in a lot of trouble asking in the wrong places how to poison somebody. You know, I did it once with the, I did it once with the CDC, and they I really. Um, this is many books ago. And I just thought, well, I'll just ask, you know, how would you do this, that, and the other thing? And then they called me back and they said, you know, we checked you out. Because <laughs> they wanted to know why you wanted to know how to kill somebody. Like, so Lucy's great. You know, she gets it. She knows you're doing it. You know, it's fiction and everything else. But I happened to read a newspaper article about um, an unusual way to commit murder. And, I, and you know, you find the, great, the best things in newspapers. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the, of the print, of print newspapers. Yeah. I'm having written for a couple. So um, there was an article and I thought, well, that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a scientist or an expert or something, but that was a pretty sort of, you know, something that anybody knows about our eye drops. And so I did a little more research and then Lucy helped me out mm-hmm. and gave me some more information, not having actually seen somebody um, murdered that way, but um, we kind of, we kind of worked our way through it. Well, let's hope we, we never do. Agatha Christie yeah. had an instance of that. And it was actually, it was a, a murder method from one of her books. And a reader read that and realized the symptoms matched someone she knew who was slowly wow. dying of the same. And it turned out to be, he was, she was being poisoned by, I can't remember, husband or boyfriend. Right. And, so that you have to be careful always about you do, you do. revealing yeah, too yeah. much. I know. I did one on. I did a book on anthrax, and a professor from the University of Virginia. We were when I was down in Charlottesville doing a signing, came to one of my events, and he was a microbiologist. And I said, "Can I write you?" And he said, "Okay." And then I wrote him all the stuff about anthrax and everything else. And he finally wrote me back and said, "I'm sorry for the delay, but he said I'm so worried about somebody like you know reading my my university email and wondering why I'm trying to tell you about anthrax." And I mean, it is a you know, it's it's a it's a thing. You have to really be um, be careful. I mean, you don't know who you're talking to and and yeah. Was this after after the the outbreak of poisonings? Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, that's, why, that's why I thought about it. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, and the other thing was the the limitations of extradition, which I have never heard of. That uh, you know, states will not go beyond adjacent states to take back 
certain classes of criminals or right. suspects. Right. And you, according to your notes, you uh, you credit uh, a detective, Jim Smith. Mm -hmm. Was it was he somebody you just called up on the phone and, and say? No, hey? no. Jim and I met ages ago over a barking dog. It's a really long story, <laughs> but um, we uh, we just got to be friends. And um, and then um, I used um, now he's now he's on nights, but when he was on days, I would take him out for lunch and pick his brain and which he, he loved it I mean he really loved it and um but I mean we'd be sitting like in a restaurant and we'd be talking about something and Jim was just he just you know he's 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 great I mean you meet somebody who really gets it they they know what you're trying to do and it's like well how could you do that and then he'll think about it and come back with a with a way to you know well you could you, you would do this you wouldn't think about that but then he say well then you know you open the car door and then her head fell off and the people <laughs> around you are suddenly just backing away you know and and I and said okay um but he was very you know he and then he'd send me pictures you know of people who've been strangled and you know and all kinds of stuff so i i had some very interesting email but he's he's a very now he's a very dear friend and um and i was really stuck for the ending on with this book and i and i like we talked about it and i said well i don't know what to do and he's the one who said well it's extradition we would never we just haven't got the resources we would never bother to get some low life you know person in 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 I don't know, Minnesota or whatever, we're just not going to go there. So they just get away from us. And in this case, it was New York and, and Washington. And he just said, we, we haven't got the money. We just, yeah. we can't do it. And I thought that's brilliant. So um, the extradition made it into the book. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to write and hope something happens. I often do that. <laughs> often do that. So how much planning do you do with your, with your, uh, with your plots? How far oh, do you go before you decide to start writing? Um, I read and do a lot of research and I get ideas and then do you know mind mapping? Have you ever seen mind mapping? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mind map now. I really, my, I, my old, my oldest son was talking to me about, about this and, 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 um, and he's, he's an analyst in, in, um, military and he's a civilian analyst in the military. He's with Africa command now, but they do a lot of, you know, sort of creative, you know, well, what if kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I do that a lot. And I find that when I have a piece of paper and I just start, you know, putting down things that are going to be important, and then I start trying to connect them, um, that works really well for me. So I do that. Um, back in the day, I, this is the only first book I've written where I haven't gone anywhere or done anything. I always go to the library. We have a great library system in Fairfax County, Virginia. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I go there and you find older books that you're not going to find in the bookstore, you know, that just ended up on the, it's just a very interesting collection of books on the, um, or in the catalog that you can, you can have ordered from the other libraries. So I do that and I slowly start to kind of chunk out my, my book. And I, I actually, I took a course in um, London years ago by Robert McKee on story structure. Oh, yes. And he talked about scenes, writing in scenes for movies. Yeah. And so ever since then I've, I write in scenes and I, and it's very, it's very unsexy, but I, I just use, um, well, I use numbers now. I used to use Excel, but I just put every scene is written in a line on my on a, on, a, on a spreadsheet. And if I and if I at the end of my writing session, if it doesn't match where the story is going, I go back and change. I go back and change the spreadsheet to match where I'm going. But I need to make sure that it'll all fit together at the end of the year when I have to turn the book in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm pretty linear. I have you know friends who can write a chunk here and a chunk there. Um, I have a lot of friends who are you know, pantsers, as we call them, seat of the pants. I interviewed Kara Black, who did three, who wrote Three Hours in Paris, the book on the attempt to assassinate Hitler. Yeah. Um, and it's it's got a timeline in it. And I interviewed her for the Virginia Book Festival. And I said, well, you know, 
I read somewhere that you do think you're a pantser. And she goes, yeah. And I said, how can you write a detailed <laughs> book like that by the seat of your pants? And she did. So I, but I'm, I, I, I like to, I plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. It's just my way. I, li- I like planning and plotting and connecting. You know, it I doesn't see- lose the spontaneity. And I think that's the big thing that people think. It's like, well, then you know, you know, and it's like, yeah, but, but you also get more possibilities. And, and I do multiple drafts. And as I go back, it's like, I could do that and I could do that. And then, and I'll get more into my, my book and then I'll think, and then I'll, then I'll call my, the people I want to talk to. And I usually try to get somebody who's at a pretty high level. And by that time I'm asking hopefully the nuanced questions. I want their language. I want the, you know, their expressions. I want, I, I want to hear, you know, sort of the things I'm, that I didn't get out of the book or from Dr. Google or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. all, all that sort of thing. So um, it's kind of a whole process for me, I think. Yeah. You know? And also you're not wasting their time. You're actually having right, specific exactly. questions that you want to do. Yeah. So I could see yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh. Well, um, I'll have one more question. Okay. What do we see in Lucy's future? What can you what can you tell us? You're working on the next book, I understand. Right. Right. Which should, should be done tomorrow. Um, it actually should have been done May 1st, but I got an extension. Um, well, I, you know, they've sort of been um, slowly moving toward um, Lucy and Corinne are going to get married, but um, in, you know, me being me, um, I the whole notion of climate change is getting to be a bigger and bigger deal in the Virginia wine industry. And so I've been very lucky in the past couple of years to come back into contact with probably one of the top vineyard consultants in the country, a woman named Lucy Morton, who always believed, her mother actually always believed that I named Lucy Montgomery for her daughter, because I'd read a book that she wrote on wine growing in the Eastern United States when I started the series. Um, but Lucy's been, she, she's been talking to me a lot. And I, I'm just, I am really, you know, just as a, just as a, a person, I'm really concerned about what's happening, you know, um, to, you know, the, the whole notion of climate change and what it's mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to see the immediacy of, 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 of the impact in just in the wine industry and what I'm hearing from all the winemakers I talk to. I mean, it's a really, um, and Lucy said to me, uh, Lucy Morton, she said, um, it's extreme climate, not, I mean, there's climate change, but there's now there are these extremes and there are these just crazy fluctuations there there'll be years when virginia has so much wine a couple years ago i mean they nobody nobody picked any grapes they either rotted or you know they 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 they, um they they didn't ripen Mm -hmm. and they couldn't get picked because of all the rain so it's it's a bigger and bigger deal Mm -hmm. so that's where that's the second book is and the next book is actually called bitter roots oh okay well we'll be looking forward to that uh ellen thank you so much for talking with us today. I know it's the afternoon, so I can only raise my glass and-, and Oh, thank you, I've got my water. <laughs> and your water oh. bottle. But thank you so much. This is Bill Peschel for the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop with a conversation with Ellen Crosby. And I hope that your favorite book is your next book. Thank you very much for showing up. Bye-bye. The Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents podcast is sponsored by the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. The store is open with limited hours, plus we accept appointments and offer a drive-by service. The store will also ship books to your home, including those from the Peschel Press Mystery Line, including our annotated editions of novels by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. To learn more, visit the store at www.mysterybooksonline.com. And thank you for listening.